Welcome back to Research Bites, the podcast chatting with research students about their journeys in academia. Today we're chatting with Hannah Kunst, a PhD candidate from the University of Sydney's Business School in the discipline of work and organisational studies. Welcome Hannah, how are you today? I'm good, thank you for having me. No worries, uh, very keen to chat to you about your work in, a, in, in a emotional regulation in the workplace, um, but first why don't you tell us how did you actually get into that kind of work? Yeah, great question. Um, I actually never thought I was going to do a PhD, (laughs) ever. Um, I did my undergrad in the Netherlands, where I'm from. So I'm from Amsterdam, and I did um, an arts and social sciences undergrad. So that was a little bit of everything, and I loved that. So it was a bit of psychology, a bit of neuroscience, anthropology, statistics, um, sociology, um, and I, I learned so much. Wow. It was it was really cool. It's a very um, broad um, broad area of education. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of an old fashioned system where they believe that you should learn a lot to be able to become really good at one thing. Mm. Because mm. the broader your base knowledge, the better you can then apply that to whatever you're doing after. Um, and then I I thought I was going to become a psychologist, so <laughs> I did a research masters. That's kind of the 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 common thing to do in the Netherlands. We don't have honors, so you do either one year more applied masters or two year research masters, where you do uh, one year of units and you learn how to do research. And then the second year is usually internships or something clinical. In the case of psychology, you do uh, an internship at a clinic. So I. I did that and I still didn't think I was going to do a PhD. I was learning how to do research because I I liked it. I was good at it. But I was like, ah, if I just have to sit by myself behind a computer all day for years, I'll be so miserable. (laughs) Um, This is exactly what I did. (laughs) Um, um, So I it was in my second year of the research masters and I was um, actually working um, in a personality disorder clinic, learning Mm. how to do therapy as a psychologist. And then the clinic where I was working went bankrupt <laughs> oh. um, because the owner had a thing for expensive cars. <laughs> um, yeah, so I then had the problem that I, I needed to finish my master's. I needed to do some sort of research project. And I was so fed up with the situation and with winter in the Netherlands uh, that I emailed <laughs> researchers in Australia. <laughs> um, I was like, I'm just going to finish my master's on a beach. Um so I did. I did that. <laughs> Get yeah. away from the seasonal depression. Yeah, exactly. And so is that path uh, kind of taking down the research masters, is that the way that people become psychologists if they did want to go down that path or it's does kind it kind of, of split a bit earlier? Yeah, it's kind of a roundabout way. I did everything a little bit more complicated than <laughs> necessary. Specify. Yes. So you can just do um, a bachelor undergrad in psychology and then you do a one-year clinical master's and then you, you can become a psychologist like you can start working as a psychologist Mm. um but that's not what I did because I I liked clinical work but I also liked learning a lot and this master's looked a lot at the biological model of psychopathology so it was not just learning how to treat and learning the theory for treatments but it was also really a foundational understanding of what do we know biology wise Mm. now of, of what is underlying um in psychological disorders, which I thought was so interesting. So it was like a neuroscience-y approach to it. When you say psychological disorders, what Mm. what do you mean um, specifically? Yeah, so that's anything from uh, depression, anxiety to um, personality disorder. So, for example, borderline personality disorder. Um, But I also learned about Alzheimer's, for example. 
And did you have sort of uh, a disease, I guess, in mind when you were wanting to move to Australia and, and continue your research? Or Not really. So I think what drew me, I, I started working with one of my supervisors now, Dr. Carolyn McKenna at the, the School of Psychology at the University of Sydney. And what I really liked about her profile, because I just looked up researchers online. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, that sounds That's good. So I'll email cool. this person. Um, and she had a very foundational approach to research and she did a lot of skill development and she looked specifically at emotional intelligence at the time. And that I thought was really interesting because I thought if you want to be a good clinician, you need to have emotional intelligence. And I'd love to learn more about that in a, in a research kind of way. Um, and she accidentally and incidentally just had a postdoc who quit and she was like, you can come here in two weeks. It's like, sweet, <laughs> I will do just that. <laughs> that's amazing. Mm. I think that's to divert from the academic pathway, cold emailing, cold calling is something that everyone needs to be able to do at mm. some stage. Tell us what you would put in the emails and mm. how that process was, how many people you emailed, mm -hmm. who responded, what did they tell you? Yeah. Yeah. It was honestly, I, I was pushed by two of my friends at the time because they were like, just do it. Just send some emails. Um, and I'm really glad I did. So I, I emailed a couple of researchers um, at King's College in London. I think maybe two. I emailed two researchers. Sorry, you wanted to go somewhere warm and sunny. Look, and you. I did. <laughs> ideally, ideally <laughs> but at the same time, the allure of like yes, of London course. colleges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, if I'm going to be miserable and cold somewhere, <laughs> I might as well do it. Stone. Like, yeah, Fair like enough. an old, beautiful, you know. Um, did not happen though, so <laughs> it's good for me. Um, I also emailed Canada, <laughs> researchers in Canada. Um, I, I heard back from uh, researchers in London quite quickly. Um, and they there was just kind of a timing problem. So their new semester was only going to start in about half a year time. And that would just be too much delay for me. And I think in my email, I, I looked up the research labs that I was interested in. And I kind of aligned that with what I've been doing in the past to kind of, mm. you know, outline that I'd be a good fit and then I just I kind of told them the situation like hey this has been happening I'm looking for an internship spot do you think there will be anything available sometime soon um, if so be great to just have a chat call something like that um, and then yeah I, I had actually two uh, Skype calls with two researchers in Australia uh, one was my now supervisor and one was uh, someone else at the School of Psychology and we just chatted for an hour with both of them um, to hear about their research when some potential internship could work all of that cool good on you for yeah. taking that leap and just putting yourself out there yeah. yeah it's quite like I feel like just try yeah. Why not? <laughs> Worst can happen is they ignore you, which yeah. happened a couple of times. Or they say no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so what uh, what were you looking at in that research position? Hmm. It was it was a bit more neuroscience focused, which was kind of I think my segue <laughs> into doing it. So I looked at um, the interplay of stress, emotional intelligence and emotion regulation and that was kind of the introduction to emotion regulation in a research way for me. So what I looked at is whether people higher in emotional intelligence, so people who are better able to recognize emotions in themselves and in others, and who are also better able to then manage their emotions and mm. emotions of others, whether they are better able to deal with their own stress. 
Um, and I worked on a couple of projects at the time. Uh, one of them was uh, we stressed out our participants in a lab. <laughs> Very fun. How do you do that? <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it, it was all ethical. Like we went through the <laughs> ethics <laughs> committee. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, but what we did is that we would have our participants come in and we'd be sitting there with say three researchers in white lab coats behind a desk, um, and we would tell them, "All right, we have two tasks for you. The first one is that you will have two minutes to prepare a." five-minute speech on a topic of interest of you. Um, and the second one was that we would ask them to count down from 2000 with minus four. <laughs> and we would give them very minimal time and we would just sit there and look angry. <laughs> Not encourage them. Every time they fuffed up with counting down the numbers, we'd be like, wrong, start again. Oh, wow. Oh, it's very stressful. <laughs> it's very stressful. Um, and we, we measured their heart rate and their cortisol and their saliva mm. to then also measure not only how they reported how stressful um, the situation was, um, but also how the, the biological reaction mm. was. Um, we didn't find a lot of results, mm. which was interesting. Yeah. So between people who can maybe m regulate their emotions better, their relationship with stress was not significant? Yeah. Or? So people, um, I think what happened is that people might be aware of the situation and what is happening. So in the case, they knew that they were stressed, um, but just that awareness um, of, so just the emotional intelligence in that case wasn't enough to actually help them feel and do better in that situation mm. which is you know it kind of makes sense unless you do it a lot i think some situations just stay stressful so is that like overthinking it kind of maybe if you're, if you're just trying to analyze why you're stressed yeah don't worry about it because it's yeah. not gonna help and <laughs> yeah. maybe like maybe there would be a learning curve like if you have high emotional intelligence and you would do it again mm. you'd know how to approach it better um but no no and so uh that sort of leads a little into what you're doing now, how did you t make that transition? Mm, yeah, um, I I had a visa at the time for seven months to be in Australia and um, do this research. And by the end of the seven months, I was like, I'm not ready to go home. I love <laughs> it here. <laughs> the beach it's pretty nice <laughs> it's pretty nice uh, i also started dating someone so it's like oh don't mind if i stay <laughs> uh, but visas right so i had to go home for a little bit and i had been working with my other supervisors so i have three supervisors on my phd um anya and helena who are in the business school and they were working with us on this project on emotional intelligence. Um, and again, I just, I kind of sat down with them. I was like, look, I'd love to stay. Um, I'm actually thinking of doing a PhD. Do you think there's any possibilities I could do it with you? Um, do you know of any scholarships? Because I'm an international and I'm not paying for that much <laughs> tuition fee. Um, and they they said, actually, yeah, in um, there is there is a deadline of a, a PhD uh, application it's in a week <laughs> so if you can write up a phd proposal uh in a week and submit it let's do it this sounds like one of the stress tests this yeah. sounds like, <laughs> like they should have been measuring your cortisol at the same time you know maybe that was it maybe they were just <laughs> yeah, testing yeah. me how stressed is she gonna get and will she manage her emotions <laughs> um it was stressful uh but i managed i had to go back home to the netherlands and then a couple of weeks later, I heard that I got the scholarship, I got into the program, and then I could come back. Mm. Mm. Amazing. As a side note, what's it like managing your own emotions, I guess, expectations just in research and in your PhD? 
in the field of emotional regulation. Is it like everyone in, in who's in that field is incredibly intelligent emotionally and they're all just amazing people who can really, you know, understand everything that is going up in their head? Everyone's so relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish. Um, I think it's kind of the same as with, you know, people that uh, become psychologists. There's always that stigma of like, oh, it's the people that need to figure out the, their own issues and they become a psychologist Mm. um i don't actually see that relationship with the people that i work with i think they're all of course highly intelligent individuals um i think if anything the more that you do research in the field the more that you become highly aware of your own emotions and your thoughts and how you're managing it to the point that it sometimes almost becomes like a rumination thing like when i'm interacting with my partner i'm like oh am i doing too much of this or not <laughs> enough of that and like <laughs> are they getting happier or more sad and huh um yeah hard to not take it home i guess <laughs> yeah definitely but i feel like that's uh, that's most research in psychology though because mm. we're we're reflecting so much on our day-to-day life it just kind of bleeds into that <laughs> right <laughs> and so yeah tell us about your project now what do you do yeah so i have six weeks left <laughs> wow so close so close so what i started looking at for my phd is um it was that transition where i just focus on emotion regulation. So no longer um, stress and emotional intelligence per se, but emotion regulation. Um, And that's a very foundationally psychology-focused theory. So it builds on um, the process model of emotion regulation um, and emotions, which says that um, emotions are generated over a sequence in time. So you'll have a situation... um, in which emotions are generated Um, and you then um, kind of deal with whatever situation you're in and you appraise that situation so you figure out whether or not something is stressful in that situation whether it's good whether it's bad Um, also what you can do in that situation so a good example is if you're um, bushwalking and you see a snake you'll very quickly identify whether or not that is dangerous and you'll experience the emotional fear or stress or whatever it is. And then that leads to a response. You'll run away. Or since I've moved to Australia, I've learned you shouldn't run away. (laughs) You need to stand still (laughs) and slowly step away. Uh, But the classic example is, right, you see a snake, you immediately sense danger and you respond. And when you think about emotion regulation, um, across that sequence of emotion, there's uh, certain times where you can regulate your emotions in that situation in different ways. Mm -hmm. So if you know that you're afraid of snakes, you might not even go on the bushwalk at all. That's where you avoid that situation. And that's like the earliest kind of emotion regulation you can do. You're just like, nah, not even going to do it. So even pre-stimulus. Exactly, exactly. And that's like an avoidant kind of thing. Mm. Um, But once the situation is happening um, throughout that sequence of emotions, you can regulate your emotions as well. So you might see a snake and you decide, I'm going to ignore it. It's not there. Um, Or you can think, oh, look, I know what kind of poisonous snakes are out there. I'm looking at this. This one is probably fine. I I won't get as stressed. Um, Or you might respond and back away. Um, So we know quite a lot about how we do this ourselves, how we regulate our own emotions. But we know much less about how we actually regulate other people's emotions. And that's something that I found really, really interesting because regulating our own emotions is one thing but we are in constant interaction with others in our day-to-day life and especially at work 
And I was like, if we know that how we regulate our own emotions is so important for our well-being, for how much we enjoy our work, how successful our social relationships are, surely the way that we regulate other people's emotions would be as well. But there wasn't a lot of research on that. And what are some of the ways that you extrinsically regulate someone else's emotion? There's many ways. <laughs> um, we, one of my supervisors has developed um, a measure where we look at specific strategies. And I think the fun thing I think about this research is that it's something that everyone will recognize. Like it's something that probably we all do all the time, but it's never kind of been labeled in this way. So an example would be humor. Um, if you see that one of your friends is struggling or sad, you just crack a joke, make them try and make them feel better. Or you can try and help them to see the situation in a more positive light, which is called positive reappraisal. So if they failed an exam, you can just be like, oh, there's, there's a second time. It's a learning experience. It's okay. Everyone fails sometimes. Things like that. Um, you can even engage in social sharing, which is where you talk about your problems and listen to the other person. So it's kind of, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Mm. That we do these things. But if we don't, label it and actually research it it's really hard to tell people what to do or what to avoid because only when we label it in a way and research we can kind of understand what happens in social interactions and what actually causes conflict or what actually causes me to be burned out after you know having a really terrible interaction with my boss mm. Mm. and that, that sort of feeds into the paper that um you're you're working on at the moment mm. um yeah, would you like to explain that a little bit more? Because you weren't looking at just the positive attributes, the the negative as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm currently working on a paper um, which is quite interesting. So the, the start of my PhD was right before COVID-19. And my, my goal was to focus on healthcare workers specifically because they work in really high stress environments and they deal with a lot of emotions, not only of themselves, but of the patients, um, of the family members. They work in teams where there's a lot of ongoing change. So it, I thought it's a really interesting group of people at work to look at, right? Um, however, <laughs> COVID-19 um, made it so that I could not. <laughs> yeah. Um understandably all of the ongoing research in hospitals was stopped um, and I wasn't allowed to run around the hospital whilst everyone was dealing with COVID-19. So what I ended up doing is that I could still conduct some research in a hospital in China actually um, not in person <laughs> but I, I had a collaborator there and we uh, made surveys and we were able to distribute those in a hospital in China. And this is really interesting because China was a bit ahead of the curve. And so we got results of what had been happening in the hospital after the first wave of COVID-19 uh, socially. So we looked at how healthcare leaders in this hospital had been dealing with the emotions of their followers. And this was particularly important because of all the uncertainty and the changes. Because when there's a lot of distress and uncertainty in a work environment, it's oftentimes our leaders who we turn to um, for guidance and support. Because we don't know what's happening. Surely they know what's happening. They can help us. So we collected this data over time and we asked the healthcare leaders, uh, how are you regulating the emotions of your followers? And we gave them this survey with a whole list of strategies that they may or may not be using. 
And then we also asked the followers, so what does your leader do to make you feel better at work? And then a couple of months down the track, we asked uh, the followers, how much are you enjoying your work? So that's job satisfaction. And how emotionally exhausted are you? And that's an element of burnout. Um, and that's kind of the thought of when you wake up in the morning, you're just like, I, ca I can't do it. I don't want to <laughs> do, do another day. Of course, you know, it's that like... Not not the physical part of burnout, but just being emotionally drained, just not being able to do it anymore. And that was very linked to COVID-19 because of working long hours mm. and unprotected work environments, all of that. Can, can I ask for like a specific example? Like are you talking about maybe like a, a senior nurse, like like a leader and the follower being maybe like a junior nurse or a senior doctor, junior doctor, like what sort of relationships yeah. were you? Yeah. So we, um, it was across occupations in the hospital. So we looked at technicians, nurses, um, and the leaders would be team leaders. Okay. So they would be senior in the role that the team had. So we had 54 team leaders and say that would have then been a uh, team leader technician with a team of, uh, junior technicians under them so it was the same kind of work the leaders tended to work more hours um, but in a more senior position yeah and all of the staff you were looking at were they all Chinese or was it an international cohort they of were all Chinese all yeah. Chinese yeah. so there's a little bit of I guess you could say talk about how different leaders in different countries, cultures, lead differently. Mm. Tell us a little bit about your findings and how generalizable they are to the rest of the world. Yeah, that's a great question and um, a really important <laughs> one too. Um, there's a couple of things that happened during this study that I think highlight how difficult but also interesting research is, right? So I wasn't there in person. I was supposed to be there in person, which would have been good because I'm very much non-affiliated with the hospital, mm. right? I'm very clearly um, a white girl. I'm tall. I have curly hair. <laughs> There's no way that I'm secretly working for a team leader. <laughs> However, I was not there in person. So um, we, as much as possible, tried to get our student collaborator to uh, hand out the surveys instead of the team leaders, because yeah. that's mm. already a bit of like a tricky situation, yeah. right? Mm. You're probably not going to be very open and honest when your team leader is like... Am I great at work? Yeah. Do you love what I'm <laughs> doing in terms of emotional regulation? Like, no. Um, however, I was very aware that I wasn't there to control that. So um, what I found in quite a bit of the data, actually, is that there was a group of followers who just said that their team leader was amazing. They did everything they could yeah. all the time, 10 out of 10 across boards, all the strategies they could do, they would use. Mm. Um, that's very unlikely. Mm. And so I had to be very critical with what parts of my data I trusted and what parts of my data I was like, I don't think I can rely on this. So that was um, difficult. And that leads into the second part. So emotion regulation is a cultural phenomenon. Um, uh, the same as in eye contact. In some countries, it's rude to have maintained eye contact. In other countries, it's not. And emotion regulation, there is some evidence that um, suppression, so not showing your emotions on your face, is much more culturally appropriate than in other countries. So in Australia, it's not. Mm. It's typically quite welcomed to show your emotions versus in more Eastern countries, um, Asian countries, suppression is a lot more common. 
Interestingly, however, what we found in this research is that when leaders asked their followers to suppress their emotions, so when they were interacting in the hospital and leaders would tell their nurses, tell their technicians, like, I, I don't want to see you frown or cry. Like, Turn that frown upside down. Mm. Everything's fine. Um, they actually did a lot worse. So the followers had lower job satisfaction and higher emotional exhaustion, higher burnout. Mm. Um, interesting. Um, and we found the opposite for positive reappraisal. So when leaders tried to help their followers see the situation in a more positive light, um, followers had higher job satisfaction and lower burnout. And so... I had expected that maybe we wouldn't see much of a difference in between the suppression and the reappraisal because of the context, mm. but we didn't actually find that. And that's maybe because of the signal that a leader gives when they tell you that they don't want to see your distress. Um, and that might just be a, a generally negative message that you can give to people you're working with. Um, I, I do really want to examine this in Australian hospitals mm. as well, which I'll mm. do during my postdoc, so <laughs> to <Seems> be continued. <laughs> it seems like there's there's quite a range, I guess, in power or intensity of these uh, sort of extrinsic emotional techniques or methods. Mm. What What is the one with the highest force? Like if you really want to, uh, you know, regulate someone's emotions, which ones were through the roof? Mm, great question. One of my other studies, because I, I was interested in that power dynamic, right, especially when you think about work, but I also looked at how co-workers interact and specifically co-workers that really like each other. Mm. So say your workmate friends, because like maybe we'll find something really different. Maybe it doesn't matter at all what you're doing because you're mates. Um, but we found that specific strategies are still much better than others. So in the case of leaders, positive reappraisal was really effective. And that's also a very highly cognitively demanding strategy. So some strategies are a lot easier to implement. Say, distraction. If I show you a photo of my cat to try and make you feel better, that's not a lot of energy that I put into me regulating your emotions, mm. right? Versus when I try to help you positively reframe your situation. I need to know what is happening, what emotion you're experiencing, and try and make you feel better in a way where I really show understanding of what you're going through and think along with you. And that takes a lot more effort on my part. And what we have been seeing is that the more effort you put in, the, the better the result. So what I found when we looked at coworkers, for example, uh, things like valuing the other, telling them that you care about them, um, helping them repraise the situation, but also just listening to them um, is actually really powerful. So it can be as simple as, hey, I see something's happening. Do you just want to tell me about it? That can already help a lot. Mm. That's interesting. Mm. Mm. Does, that, does that work in the... Maybe I'm sort of overthinking this, but uh, is this sort of like if you have a coworker who's maybe experiencing maybe some uh, mental health challenges or, or whatever that may be, does that make their um, you know their their time at work more um, enjoyable? I guess. Or are we just talking about you know you've you've, you've got a grant due, everyone's working really hard, <laughs> everyone's really stressed, <laughs> it's all gone nuts, you know, <laughs> and then and then it's that sort of like in that moment because certain workplaces. They're not, you know, like obviously hospitals are go, go, go mm -hmm. all the time, especially you know, during pandemics too. Mm. But like not all workplaces are kind of like crazy at all times. Mm. So, yeah, uh, to really capture that, you kind of have to do a day by day examination of the situation at work, um, the social interaction, the emotions that are happening. And that's really 
good research. I haven't done that yet. Um, so it's hard for me to pinpoint that exactly. But what we do know is that when we decide to regulate someone's emotions, we do that because we have a certain goal in mind. And the goal can simply be to make someone feel better. And that kind of goes across all situations. Um, but it can also be to get work done, to avoid conflict, uh, to keep up your appearances. And the goal that we have does influence the strategy that we select. Mm. So in terms of, of the situation at work, some strategies that you think might not be that helpful um, can actually be helpful given the situation. We do know that from, for example, intrinsic emotion regulation. So when you deal with your own emotions, if I'm um, managing a situation where I have a coworker who is upset, but we're also dealing with customers, um, we don't want to show our emotions. So in those cases, maybe suppression or distraction is actually much more helpful mm. um, to just kind of manage that situation. As long as afterwards you make sure that your relationship is still good, that you show them that you care. Yeah. Just on that point, I guess, what are the sectors or the industries that you think would benefit most from this kind of role? I think any. <laughs> yeah. Any industry. I think any job where you interact with another human being. Um, the awareness of what exactly it is that we do when we interact with other people can bring so much. Because I think... I don't think that, for example, leaders in hospitals are, you know, bad people that, mm. that don't want to see the emotions of others. I think a lot of the time like, you just get swept up in the situation and you just do the next best thing you know. But if you're aware, like we talked about earlier, if you're aware of, of what it is that you do or that you tend to do in those situations, the easier it becomes to change that behavior. And I think that's what I find so interesting in that research, that kind of overlap between clinical psychology almost and this research is that it becomes very practical because if you know that, oh, usually it's actually one of the things I found really interesting. When I want to avoid conflict at work, typically um, my participants said that they would use suppression in that situation, which makes sense. But I also found that that actually increases conflict. So mm. there might be a discrepancy between the goal that we have in mind for whatever that social interaction is and the actual result of what we're doing. And so when you can make people aware of that at work, it can actually help them improve their social interactions a lot. And I think that that's in any kind of occupation where, you, where there's people. Hmm. Yeah, we could almost have one whole podcast for leaders and then another whole <laughs> podcast for followers, right? Yes. <laughs> With all of this gold. But let's look at it from the lens of HDR students um, or even postdocs, so honor students, master students, postdocs. We are all going to work with a leader. Our supervisors leave um, PhD and you're going to work with um, a superior somewhere. And we all want to end up in good working environments, yeah? So what, based on your research and reading of all of the research, what are some practical implications you, you have or some practical advice you have for people when looking for a new job? What should they look for in their potential, fo uh, potential leader? Mm, that's a great question. I think what I've seen in my research and what I've been reading about in the last couple of years is that there are a lot of traits that a leader might have that make them a good leader. 
And some of these things you might be able to pick up on quite quickly. Um, some of these things might be a lot more masked. Mm. And I think a lot of the times you can get a pretty good insight into who someone is as a person when you interact with them. I think when someone shows genuine interest in you um, and also follows up, so they say one thing, but they'll also follow up in their actions, that's a really good indication. When it comes to work environments, Sometimes you just don't know until you're actually working in that environment um, because some toxicity in workplaces mm. or even, you know, abusive supervision or leadership is not that obvious at the get-go. So I think asking around, talking to a lot of people, maybe, you know, if you know someone who's worked in that environment or even mm. with these people, just send them a message, connect on LinkedIn, um, reach out to them, be like, hey, I've seen that you worked here and here. I'm this and this person. I am thinking of applying. Can we grab a coffee sometimes? Mm. Um, during the interview process, um, you can even ask, you know, why is this position available? Just try and get a little bit of an insight of what, what's happening but at the end of the day, I think you just have to, you know, put in good faith. Um, there's things you can do. There's things that, you know, you can improve on when you deal with other people. Um, some things are out of your control and that's always going to be that way. Mm. Um, but I think if you feel that a work environment is not right for you, it's okay to trust that feeling as well. You know, I, I don't think that anyone, especially in an area where you work so closely with someone, sometimes there's just personality clashes or you just don't, you, it's just not a fruitful work relationship and that's okay. That's really good advice. <laughs> Is it? I feel like it's a bit vague. Yeah, no. It's <laughs> this is like a, um, <laughs> a question, I don't know if it's become a recurring theme, but we may as well. Um, do you have... Moments in your your research, like I, you know, as a as a person that loves stats, and I know that you love stats. <laughs> I, I was very much enjoying <laughs> your methods of your analysis. Yep. Not that I answered completely all of it, but that's okay. <laughs> um, like a question that I, I guess I'm really interested in, and it's something that um, I guess I, I think more in the context of science research. Mm -hmm. um, but in in your in your work that you've done. What are some like elements of, of, of creativity that you sort of seek or that you think about when you're doing your research? Do you have moments where, you know, you're, you'll come home from work or on the weekends and you'll kind of think about ideas in a different way? Like, do you, do you have this, this sort of approach? Mm, yeah, definitely. I think you need that to, to keep it fun as well. Um, so I, I think what I love about research is that it's so multifaceted. So, I feel like when I get a little bit sick and tired of designing a study, that's okay because now I'm going to run the study. And then, you know, once I'm a little bit tired of that, I'm going to analyze and then I get to writing and then we're going to do it all again. So I'm never working on one thing <clears throat> for too long. I also love, <clears throat> so sorry, I love um, research analysis. So I think the moment, <laughs> I know this is so <laughs> um, but the moment that you've collected all your data, and now you're going to analyze it and you have no clue what's in there. You're going to find out. Do you, you want to come analyze my PhD? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Will you pay me for it? I'll, I'll be yeah. there. Oh, sorry. Um, that's the catch of yeah. It's always a catch. <laughs> I, I love that. Um, but sometimes, um, you know, it, it just gets 
boring because you're doing something for a really long period of time and what I found helps me is that when I get stuck on something or when I'm not enjoying it so much I just grab a notebook and a pen and a coffee and I leave my phone at home and I just go for a long walk through the park for like an hour or two and I just think about my research or a specific analysis problem that I have and I just allow myself the time to think because I think that's the special thing about doing a PhD is that you just have time to think and to read and to develop yourself in that way. And that's so special. Hmm. I, I like that idea, that yeah. image of you sort of walking through to the forest with this, like hurriedly scurrying down some <laughs> notes. <laughs> <laughs> Slowly, not hurriedly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, I've actually drawn like full statistical models. Like, how am I going to do this? What would this look like? Like sit down in a yeah. park. I actually had a dog like run into me. Yeah, it's great. And you didn't want to do a PhD. I did not want to All do right. a PhD. Can you believe? Look at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's a nice segue, I think, into a question that we'd love to ask is what is some advice you would give to younger Hannah? So back in undergrad, starting to look at masters, potentially going into the working environment, having gone through such a long and cool journey now, Looking back at your younger self, what is some piece of advice you'd give yourself then? I think the biggest piece of advice that I've learned really over all the years of education that I've done now is um, to not be afraid to ask for help and to not always seem perfect or want to seem perfect. Mm. Because I think the hardest moments that I've had throughout all of my education is that I didn't want to show any weaknesses or show that sometimes I don't know the answer or show that I need help. And I think there's nothing wrong in that. Now I've learned, hmm. but I wish I, I knew that sooner. Yeah, that's great advice. It's a tough one. I think I, we all struggle with that. I'm yes. sure. Yes. Well, thanks for coming on. That was thanks great to chat with me. you. Um, yeah. Good luck with the future. It's keen to see how it goes and yeah, all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you.